0: With that, today, we'll not be going through a particular passage in a particular chapter. Rather, we're going to be going through three chapters today. So chapters 12, 13, and 14. Because these verses, when you guys read it, it kind of summarizes one theme. And this theme is the fear of God's justice. Now, how many of us really put these two words together? Fear and God. I think a lot of times we kind of separate the two because of the idea that we have of God, the view that we have of God. And maybe we view God much like Santa Claus, a happy grandfather with a gray beard who just waiting for us to come to him. And we will be embraced by him, and all the sins that we commit on this earth will be forgotten. And that, there's a part of that that is true, found in Christ Jesus. But we also have to understand that though God is a God of love, he is equally a God of wrath. And he is a God of justice. And some, uh, an attribute of God that is forgotten in the church. And I think this is why we see the attitude of the people coming into the doors of church with no reverence for the Lord, putting God in their pocket and pulling Him out whenever they need Him, not understanding who He really is. And we're going to see that today in the lives of King Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the two kings of the nation as a whole of Israel. You guys remember last week, because of Solomon's sin, his sin of turning to, his, uh, to idols of the world, because of his love for his foreign wives, he was not fully committed to God in his heart. And because of this, the Lord put judgment on Solomon, that the kingdom would be split, but not during his reign, but during the reign of his son. And we also were reminded last week that it wasn't just one sin of Solomon. That was that sin that really angered the Lord. But what? how did Solomon get there? And we were reminded that it was actually series of, of small compromises that Solomon made that led him to to fall greatly. So a great lesson on our part to always be mindful of how we live, that one compromise will lead to another compromise, which will lead to another compromise. And it will be only a matter of time when we follow in Solomon's footsteps. But in these chapters, may we turn our focus on God himself. You know, when I was growing up, I see Nathan, just how wild he is. I was that child. I was very wild. And you know, the schools actually could not contain me. They could not handle me. I was a wild child. I remember kicking the janitor on a couple occasions, and then I was taken to the principal's office. I was taken to the principal's office many times in elementary school. My father would visit, just surprise visit me when I was in first and second grade. And even that young, I was sitting next to the teacher, not because I was a good student, but because I was messing around. And the teacher did not want me contaminating the other children <laughs> I was a wild child, and so I prayed to the Lord that Nathan did not pick up my genes, right? And then I got into middle school, and I got into more trouble, right? And one brother who's actually visiting us here, we caused trouble together, right? We, we would have visits with the teachers, and they did not know how to handle both of us now, Okay. We just wreaked havoc on all our teachers through middle school to high school. We were known as troublemakers. And, you know, when I have reunions with some of the people that went to high school, they're like, man, I remember you causing trouble. And I'm like, yeah, I did. I was pretty bad. And when I think about it, like why was I doing the things that I was doing? And I realize, you know, I really didn't have any fear in me. I wasn't really afraid of the consequences that would happen. Like, oh, you, I mean, if luckily I didn't get expelled, but I mean, no school, wonderful, right? I mean, nothing really frightened me. And I think this is why we see that the people in Scripture in particular are continuing in their life of sin. Right, Because there is no fear instilled in them. Because if you have no fear of something, you kind of dismiss it. And you don't see real consequences of your actions, especially if you're living in a life of darkness and sin, you're going to continue in it because there's no deterrent there. Chapter 12, we're introduced to Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And this is the chapter where the kingdom actually splits in two. Okay. In the previous chapter, it was warning. Warning that the kingdom would be split because of Solomon's sin. And the kingdom will be split during his son, Solomon's son's, Rehoboam's reign. And God was very specific on how it would happen. That Jeroboam would be the next king foretold by prophet Ahijah. And that Jeroboam would take actually majority of the tribes of Israel. That Jeroboam would take 10 tribes with him and form the northern kingdom. Which we can refer to as Israel. Now when you see the northern kingdom Israel it's kind of confusing. Because I mean the whole nation is known as Israel. But the northern kingdom was also known as Israel. And Ephraim, it was given multiple names. And the southern kingdom, led by Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was um, the kingdom of Judah. And there were only two tribes residing in the southern kingdom. And so you can see that there was a mismatch here. Ten verses two. So, what actually happened? In chapter 12, we get the inauguration of Rehoboam. It's all wonderful and dandy. The, the rightful king is taking his place on the throne. Where is Jeroboam, though? You guys remember Solomon, knowing the prophecy and knowing the judgment that was to come, tried to take matter into his, into his own hands and attempted to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam fled and ran to Egypt. And so he's in Egypt during this time. Rehoboam becomes king and Jeroboam hears of this and he feels that it is the opportune time to go back to Israel. And so early in this chapter, verse 4, Jeroboam is causing trouble for Solomon's son. And what reason does he raise? Jeroboam leads actually a strike opposing the heavy taxes by the government. So Jeroboam becomes the people's champion and is fighting for justice. So he's fighting for a good cause. He's telling Jeroboam, Solomon's son, hey, the taxes are kind of high here. And we're trying to make a living, but you're taking all our money. So it's justifiable. So he's doing really nothing wrong here. And Jeroboam tells the mob led by Jeroboam, come back in three days. And I think there's wisdom in this. Jeroboam not wanting to answer right away. He says, let me think about it, which is what a wise man should do, to think before you talk. Great words of wisdom in this. He goes and what does he do? He does even another wiser thing. He consults the elders. And he consults the wise men that was actually helping out Solomon during his reign. So Solomon, when he was leading the nation of Israel, he was actually consulting with other people. This is what a wise man does. Solomon could not do it himself. So Rehoboam goes to the men who assisted his father and tells him about the situation. What should we do? And of course, the wise men, anything that comes out of their lips will be be wise. And nine times out of ten, the correct way to go. So you want to listen to someone? Listen to someone with gray hair, wrinkly face, and a beard maybe, right? Oh, that's a wise person. And they said, hey, if you um, please the people, you do what they ask, they will love you and they will follow you. So they're implying, decrease the taxes then they will love you for it and they will follow you because you are the people's servant. But this is where Reboam falls. And I think this is where his youth actually uh, discredits him here. Because after talking to the, the council of the elders, he goes talks to his friends. He talks to his friends who are the same age and the friends that he grew up with. What advice do they give? The young man who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips and I will discipline you with scorpions. What were the young men telling Solomon? Lead with fear. Show them who's boss. How dare they come to you ask of you something disagreeable you tell them okay you thought my father was you know was leading with a heavy hand I'm going to be twice as harsh stick out your chest show them who's boss this is how you're going to lead and you know what I don't blame them If you ask any young kid, this is probably the advice they will give. They haven't lived life long enough to understand that sometimes, you know, leading with fear is not the best way. And thus begins the turn of events that we will know as the split of a nation. Jeroboam and the people not happy with this. They separate themselves. They separate themselves from everything that Jeroboam stood for. And just as God had prophesied and placed judgment on toward Solomon, Jeroboam took with him ten tribes and went to the north. And then, verses 16 to 20 in this chapter is is exactly what God has said, is coming to fruition. You know, I really have to wonder, and this is just something for you guys to chew upon, food for thought. You know, Roboam messed up. He messed up big time. And this is what caused the split. But here's my question. Did Roboam have any other choice but to mess up? I mean, God said, thus says the Lord. And when you hear, thus says the Lord, you know it is something that's going to happen. It is set in stone. So in one way or another, there was actually going to be a civil war and there was actually going to be a split. That the split was actually inevitable. So my question to you guys is, Rehoboam, did he have a choice? And this is something that you have to think about. How does the, uh, man's free will play with God's sovereignty, because I see God's sovereignty written throughout this narrative here. Reboam had no choice. He was following exactly what God said would happen. So though we say, man, Reboam, you dropped the ball, can we really blame Reboam when God was the one who said this is going to happen? Something for for us to really think about. Now, so before a uh, full civil war breaks out, the chapter ends with, with God pretty much telling the southern tribe who's getting ready for war against the northern tribe, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up and fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. <clears throat> Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. <coughs> so here we have again, God attributing what has taken place here to himself. He has not said, this is what Rehoboam did. So you guys are facing the consequences. God says explicitly, "For this thing is from me." <clears throat> then we continue in the in the book, and from the rest of chapter thirteen, and actually the latter part of chapter twelve, from verses twenty five to fourteen. It just recounts the downward spiral of these two kings. They have established themselves as the rulers of their respective kingdoms. And we hear and we share um, and we look into their lives and we find how they have messed up. How they have messed up and tainted their own legacy and how they will be remembered in future generations as kings who failed, kings who messed up. Let's start with Jeroboam. In chapters 25, in verses 25 through 33 of chapter 12, Jeroboam is established as the king. But what begins to happen is that doubt begins to creep in into his mind. And this is what he's saying to himself. Verse 27, if the people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord. Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. What is Jeroboam saying? He is fearing that his people, the ten tribes that followed him, will turn back to God, and in, by doing so, they're actually going to turn back to the rightful king, Rehoboam. And if they do that, he is thinking in his mind, then they're, they're going to actually come and kill me. And so he, he, he begins to just play in his mind all these scenarios that doesn't end well for him. <clears throat> so sin has already creeped into his heart. And so what does he do? He sets up golden calves. He sets up altars for... Um, the people to worship false idols. This is what he does to to combat his potential dethronement. His eyes turn away from God and he does what he feels is best. Self-preservation. I mean, isn't this what we're all about? Do what it takes To keep yourself alive. Jeroboam did just that. And so judgment is placed upon Jeroboam. So a prophet comes to Jeroboam, tells him that, you know, he he will be cursed and that his son will die. And there's nothing that Jeroboam can do about it. He has turned his heart away from God. Now, there's this odd story in the middle of chapter 13, actually, majority of chapter 13, where the prophet who actually confronts Jeroboam disobeys God's command himself. God told him, Don't eat or drink with Jeroboam, don't take anything. But he does, reluctantly, and he gets killed by a lion. Okay. And so we have people left and right disobeying God. Even a prophet who was sent to rebuke Jeroboam disobeys God and gets killed himself. And then we see Jeroboam's son who gets killed, who dies. And not much is said uh, about the rest of Jeroboam's life and his reign because it's pretty much a uh, reign of, of mistakes and folly. And that Jeroboam, until his death, continued to do what was evil. He did not turn away from his evil ways. Even after the prophet. Confronted him. He continued in his ways of sin. Imagine that. If you thought something would shape him up, it would actually be a prophet telling him, hey, shape up. But he continues. I think a lot of us can relate with Jeroboam here. Warning after warning from God. And yet we do not heed the warnings that we continue in our ways of sin. Well, what about rehoboam maybe he was a little bit better well not so much he, he, he even has a shorter section than jeroboam and the very short description that we have of rehoboam is that he did not lead his people wisely It says this in verse 22 of chapter 14, And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who you would think would do the right thing and turn the people to God, was letting the people do whatever they wanted. They worship foreign gods, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods that Israel was supposed to demolish completely. And I think we can relate with Jeroboam in this sense. You know what? We are called as children of God to change the world. We are the salt of the world. We are God's antiseptic. We're there to change the world, but what has actually happened is that the world changed us. We're supposed to conquer the world for the name of Jesus Christ, but the world has infiltrated us. It has, it has seeped into the cracks of the church and into the Christian life. And so now we live like the rest of the world. And so God sends Shihak, the king of Egypt at that time, and it's not, you know, after Solomon's death, you know, the relations between Egypt and Israel were not so great. Egypt comes and pretty much takes everything of of, uh, Jerusalem. And this is pretty much how Rehoboam's reign is recorded. No great act is recorded about this king's life, either of these kings' lives. They will, re- they will be remembered as kings who failed. And why do I believe that they failed? No fear of God and God's justice. And I'm going to pose the question that I brought up in the beginning of the sermon. How many of us have this in, in, in us? The fear of God. What, how we are living, I think, is pretty much what the book of Judges says about pretty much that whole period. In a couple places, we see it in Judges 17 and in Judges 21, that the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. They had no regard for the commands of God. They did what was right in their own eyes. That pretty much sums up what took place during that book. Failure after failure after failure, Samson being the most popular one. Are we people who just do things according to what is right in our own eyes? That we are the masters of our own faith? But if God is in the picture, there should be a sense of reverent fear of God. You know what Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 10, 28? Telling his disciples. Disciples were fearing that, oh, what if we go out and evangelize and they try to, you know, kill us. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus Christ is referring to God. Fear. Job 28, 28. Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So what is wisdom? It is to fear God. To fear Him. Great Christian thinker and contributed much to to our faith. A.W. Tozer, he said this, When men no longer fear God, they transgress His laws without hesitation. The fear of consequences is of no deterrent when the fear of God is gone. We need to have a big God theology, big view of God. Because only then we'll understand what fear of God really is. Now, this is the thing that we have to do as believers in Jesus Christ. We kind of have to split hairs here because the way that we fear God is going to be quite different than the way that an unbeliever fears God. I don't think God wants us to fear him like a child who is being abused by his parent. Because 1 John says, you know, true love casts out fear. That we should not fear, then which one is it? But it's understanding who God is and what he is capable of doing. And understanding that As a God of justice, to a believer, he disciplines. And so we are fearing his discipline because God disciplines those he loves. The times, you know, as I, when I go back to my younger years, you know, the, I didn't really wasn't really scared, but the times that really, really set me straight was the time when I knew I would be disciplined by my parents. When they had that teacher-parent conference, and my father would come listen to the teacher, "Your son's in a lot of trouble." That ride home was petrifying. I, all I could think about was how I was going to run away from my father. Like, oh my gosh, please. Understanding that that real, true consequences will come. It, it set me straight for that period. It was temporary, absolutely. But for that short time, it did set me straight. But now, seeing who God is and what he is capable of doing, And understanding that his discipline is on par with who he is as the holy and mighty God. I pray that that will set us straight. For Proverbs 14, 27, the words of Solomon himself, the fear of the Lord is fountain of life. And no one may turn away from the snares of death. That one may turn away from the snares of death. So how do we get this right, reverent fear of God? This reverent awe of God? It is through knowing Him. It is simple as that there is no magic formula here. Read Scripture, because Scripture will remind you of who God is. What a holy, transcendent being that He is. That He is not equal to us in any way. And He is truly the one that is able to destroy both soul and body and throw it in eternal fire that we call hell. We want to walk in wisdom, making the right decisions, learning how to please the Lord. The idea that we alluded to last week boils down to this, how you view God. And I pray that all of us can view him to the right lens. Yes, we love him, for he is a God of love, but he is a God of wrath. He is a God of justice. And this is an attribute that we cannot just erase because we do not like it. And I pray when we do that, that that will build in us a sense of humility when we step in, not just in church, when we step into a relationship with God. And as we have heard in our sister Ruth's prayer, that he is not our genie. He is the Lord, the king of the universe that we serve. That all men who came before him fell prostrate before him.